this is probably the number one thing I would say to any cash based person. It's like, if you're putting out good work and you understand that you're bringing value that's different than a more traditional model, then you just have to kind of write it out. And there's no other way of sugarcoating it except for the fact that it takes time. So the big question is, how can physical therapists create a successful career earning six figures or more and give patients the care they need without relying on insurance companies for reimbursement? If you want to learn the answers to those questions and more, then you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. Aaron LeBauer, physical therapist, business coach, serial entrepreneur, and author of the Cash PT Blueprint. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. This is your host, Aaron LeBauer. Today, my special guest is Wesley Wong. Wesley is a physical therapist and ACL rehab specialist, been following on Instagram for a long time. He puts out some amazing content about rehab, uh, pain, ACL, etc. And I just wanted to make sure I had him on the show because I know he's got some things that you guys are going to pick up and be able to utilize in your business and career. So Wesley, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to um, come hang out with us. Appreciate having me on Aaron. Uh, so tell me, um, I always love to go back and figure out like, where did people come from. So how did you get into PT? Like, is there a, was there like a story or is there something, or, I mean, did you have an ACL issue and then that ended up um, kind of taking you down this path of doing physical therapy? Yeah. So I, I graduated from Maryland with, uh, with an economics degree and I went to go work for a big consulting firm, Accenture. And at that time, actually, before I started working there, I tore my ACL. Um, I couldn't get surgery cause I didn't have any insurance. So obviously paying for that out of pocket is out of the question. So um, I didn't really know much about the field, to be honest. I had some friends who had some injuries and they went to PT, but I never obviously went with them. Um, so I, I was going to work and also going to PT at the same time in the morning. And then the more I went to PT, I could see myself getting better, recovering from my surgery. And then as I was, I was getting better, I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of cool. Um, and I was really lucky to be in a more like sports oriented setting also, which I know there's obviously clinics who don't have that ability. So we had like a half court basketball hoop and that was what I was trying to get back into. We were in a gym. Um, so it was, it was a really unique environment. And the more I went to the rehab process, started just contemplating what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to sit in front of a computer staring at Excel for the next 40 years of my life. So I made the decision after talking with some friends and family that I, I should switch careers. So yeah. I, I, I quit that job. I went to community college for two years to do all my prereqs. Um, and then I went to PT school in 2012, graduated in 2015 um, from Franklin Pierce University. And then two and a half years, I went, I worked at a kind of a typical physician-owned facility. Yeah. And then in October of 2017, Teddy kind of saved me and, and brought me to Healthy Baller to be in a more cash-based setting. And I, I, I've been here for almost three years now. Dude, that's awesome. That's awesome. So you graduated school. How many years did you spend doing uh, economics or what were you, were you doing like management <laughs> consulting economics type of stuff? Yeah. Like, it's, that's it's what my friends hard. did in air quotes. <laughs> Who knows what they did really? You know? Yeah. It's a little hard to explain. It's been so long. It's been so long since I've worked there. It's been a decade at this point. Yeah. Um, but I, the way they framed it was like there's consultants and then there's, I was in the services department. So the consultants were my clients and then the, the consultants had their clients. So yeah. whatever the consultants needed, I, I, I kind of try to help them with more like the back end stuff, trying to do more admin stuff is probably, mm -hmm. is probably the best word to say it. And um, yeah, it, it just wasn't 
obviously anything that I wanted to do for, I literally was sitting in a cubicle, very typical cubicle, Excel 40 hours a week. And that was, that was my job. Was this um, in DC, Maryland area or were you somewhere else? Yeah. My client was in Virginia. So I I had to trek over to Virginia. Yeah. Well, I was a temp in uh, San Francisco on the 43rd floor of uh, Embarcadero center building number three. And uh, I was like, there's no way I could ever do this. I was like, thank God I didn't like get roped into this for a real job. But I was just like staring at a cubicle carpet, you know, I was like, this is horrible. Um, so I get it. So, so you, you decided what, I mean, was it, was it an easy decision to switch careers? Uh, definitely not. Uh, I, I guess the part I, I didn't, I failed to mention was the part that Accenture was my dream job. I went into my freshman year at Maryland. I was like, I want to get a job at Accenture. Yeah why i didn't i don't really know i was 18 years old i just probably wanted for the recognition of working at a big consulting firm which right. is what a lot of kids want at that age uh, so there wasn't a lot of thought processes in, into my decision to pursue that career path and then you know when you get there a lot of times the expectations don't really meet uh don't really meet what you what you think and you know i i, I got there the first day you know i was first day, i was like we were really excited for the first week orientation laptop all that kind of stuff and then as the weeks kind of go by you're kind of just like I don't really want to do this for, you know, mm-hmm. the next 40 years of my life. And then, you know, I, it was a hard decision because, you know, I had a decent salary at the time and then I was going to basically forego that for the next five years. So you think about the the impact economically of, you know, five years of salary to negative income because I'm obviously taking out loans for student loans and it, it was a hard decision financially. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I, I am very, very happy with my decision. I have zero regrets. I'm even though I was, you know, hundred five thousand dollars in debt, it was it was well worth it because I'm I'm so happy now. Yeah. Um, just just doing what I love to do. When you uh, quit your job and went to community college, did you work somewhere else because you couldn't, or were you just full time student at that point to get the prereqs in? <laughs> I was a part time student because uh, I was taking two lab classes. So it was going to be a little bit too much to handle at one time, yeah. and three wouldn't have helped me because I couldn't have done enough to to a year and yeah. two years. Um, it's funny. Uh, I actually, nobody, no outside of my friends know this story, but I actually applied for a job at Chick-fil-A because I was just, my friend worked there. I was like, you know, whatever it's, it's easy. I can just work there for, you know, 15 hours a week and make some money. Right. Uh, my, my friends said the manager looked at my resume and said I was overqualified to work at Chick-fil-A because they saw my <laughs> previous salary from my last job. So I, I never got a chance to work at Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't, I, I didn't really try to look for another job. I probably should have at that time, yeah. but I wasn't really spending any money either way. I was living right. on my, I was living with my mom and she was feeding me and stuff. So I just focused on, on trying to get, get the best grades I possibly could. Yeah. I had the same thing. I was moving from North Carolina to California and I've stopped at a friend's house for an undetermined amount of time. I was like, well, I gotta get a job. And I went to Red Robin and the manager's like, you graduated from Duke university. Why do you want to work here? He's like, come on. He's like, I was like, dude, I was like, I'm here. I need a job. And I was just like, I just, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. He, he gave me a job for two months. I mean, you know, but, but I had been like five other places. Like, well, you're ever qualified. I was like, I'm not even qualified to like do anything. You know, I got this degree in nothing. Um, you know, so uh, yeah. And I went back to PT school too. So now you're heading back to, well, you know, let me go back. What was like, what were you doing? Like you tore your ACL, right? You um, said you couldn't afford to get surgery. How did, I mean, did, were they like, 
surgery is going to be twenty five thousand dollars, or was it like we can't even afford it? We're not even going to go find out what it's going to be. I, I I did a Google search and kind of did like a mean mean what a, a out of network or out of like I guess completely out of pocket uh, physical therapy would cover. Uh, and it was, you know, my, my parents don't have the greatest insurance. So I, I guess technically I could have used theirs, but it would have still been like $10,000, you yeah. know? So it was not something that I, or I wanted my mom to possibly, you know, pay for. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, I'm just going to wait and yeah. try and get a job. And hopefully at the time I can get some insurance and get some surgery. So yeah. luckily it worked out it, yeah. eventually. Um, but I was walking around with it for six months. Yeah. Uh, but you don't so, need an ACL. It's <laughs> true. At least for... <laughs> linearly straight is fine right, um, right but my knee was buckling on probably weekly uh right. just you know, wow. yeah so like just i would have to be very careful going up the stairs because I, I would have to turn right to go to my bedroom so mm-hmm. you know typical guy at that age you like to sprint up the stairs and like kind of turn and i would sometimes my knee would buckle on me so i like start to slow myself down wow um, okay and i was so, like you're like mile. sprinting and it's like bleh, yep. right yeah. oh man yeah. So it was, it was definitely needed at the time to, to, to get some surgery. Or I also didn't do enough prehab, so that was my right. fault too. Right. What were you doing when it happened? Were you playing sports or was it something funky? Yeah, playing basketball. Went up for a layup. Yeah. Guy tried to take me out from behind and my leg just kind of came under me and, and that, that was the end of it. No pop yeah. or anything like that. So I was kind of in denial for a while. But after the MRI, I was like, yeah, you definitely have a torn Asian yeah. KC. I was like, okay, well, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. And it was part of it uh, when you were able to go get your job uh, after college. Was that the job that got you the insurance and level which you could, hey, I can go. Um, did you get it reconstructed or just do yep. therapy? Yeah. Yep full reconstruction, patella tendon. Uh, and I graduated college in 2009. And mm-hmm. I don't know, for some of you that do remember, it was during a recession. Uh, so it was actually really, really hard to get a job. Like I yeah. had friends who couldn't get a job for over a year after we graduated. Right. So I graduated in May and couldn't get a job until January. So I, I had a good eight month layoff of, of not pretty much doing nothing. So I was going back to college, play basketball with my friends. And that's when I, that's when I hurt myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, thankfully I was able to get a job in, in, in January just to get some insurance. Wow. Wow. That's great. So that's, I mean, I, I remember that, like I was starting my clinic right around then having babies and God, it was, uh, well, I didn't have babies. My wife did. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So PT school, and then you go get a job doing uh, PT and now you're, but then you've moved to uh, now you're um, at the current uh, location. Was there something along the way where you, when you started uh, like focusing and specializing other people with ACLs, was it mainly because of your experience and you helping people do something that you didn't get? Or was it kind of, did you fall into that based on like a clinical rotation or where you got a job? Um, so, you know, I, I worked at a physicianal facility, you know, pretty standard place. I was seeing 55 to 60 patients a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you kind of just get, you know, I, I think as a new grad, a lot of times you think that you can handle that for forever. You know, you're, right. you're kind of fresh. You're kind of new. You're like, I can do this for forever. And that was my mindset going into it. I was like, no, no problems. And I, I always had aspirations of being in a more sports oriented uh, place. I love working with athletes. That's how I got hurt. Um, it, it was always a demographic that I always wanted. And at those places, like I, I would be lucky if I had four patients that were athletes, uh, mm-hmm. maybe a couple active adults who I also enjoy working with too. Um, but then a lot of the other patients were, you know, total knees, total hips, again, very necessary, but it wasn't why I pursued PT in the first place. Um, and then I, I think when I got to healthy baller, it was, you know, as, as, as you're fully aware, starting in a cash base is a grind. 
Right. And, you know, I, I was talking to Teddy and he was like, you know, maybe a good idea to think of like a niche that you want to go down. And then I got a, I think three or four months in, I, I got an ACL girl. Um, and I, I always enjoy working with ACLs. Obviously I connected mm-hmm. with them because I'd been through it myself. And then because I, I, I didn't have a full, I didn't have a full case though. Like her and I were spending an hour and a half together each session. Right. I was like, I, I might as well use this to learn. And it's going to benefit. She's getting a bonus her for more time than I'm supposed to. Um, so that was kind of the process of me figuring out where my niche was and her and I still talk to this day and she's been graduated from me for over two years now at this point. Um, so it, we, it's kind of a special bond because you spend, I mean, you're with this person for six, nine months and sometimes even a year if it's, if it's a longer recovery process, which is very possible for an ACL. Mm -hmm. Um, so at that time I, you know, I, I went to her game, her first game or her second or third game back and, you know, text her, she texted me after her first game and I was like, wow, this is really, really cool. Um, and then I just started getting a little more ACLs cause she told her friends about me and stuff like that. And it kind of just fell into my lap and I was like, this kind of makes sense for myself because I've torn both of my ACLs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I just, I just really enjoy being a part of the process of this kind of like lengthy recovery from, right. you know, brace and swelling and all the way back to playing sports again. It's a really, really fun process to be a That's part awesome. of. You, were, you, you said you just tore both of them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, my, my left one, I tore eight years ago. It's actually still torn. Uh, it's, yeah. it's partially torn. Uh, so I, I've been functional. I still play basketball yeah. fine. Uh, it's funny because I, I was just talking to some friends about this. I was like, had I known quarantine was going to happen, not that anyone would have, right. I probably would have opted to get surgery on my left knee because yeah. I wouldn't have to miss any basketball because I haven't played <laughs> basketball in you know, six, seven months at this point. Right. Um, right. But you know, it's, it's all in hindsight at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. Hindsight's 2020. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so great. So cool. So it was, so the, I love it because the ACL specialty is kind of came out of one, your personal experience to the patient you had, but also the um, really the position job that you now have or your and you said, so you're a contractor at healthy baller, but it's, mostly cash based how did can you tell me a little bit more about like the inner workings of how that is how that how you came to um work there it's and how how that kind of developed right yeah so when i was working at my my last job i was you know i i I had a few athletes like i said and i had one girl in particular she was post-op acl she was about you know four to five months post-op very smooth recovery but my facility we didn't have any open space heaviest dumbbell we had was 10 pounds heaviest kettlebell was 15 (laughs) pounds and you know you, you can't really load someone up to the capacity that they need to be loaded. I mean, maybe if they're like a 60 pound kid, but that's impossible. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, I was like, I think you need to go to someone that's more sports oriented to get you ready for lacrosse. And then I reached out to Teddy and I sent Teddy, I sent her to Teddy. And I think Teddy's Teddy sent me a DM on Instagram and was like, you know, just, just asking for an update, you know, like how's mm-hmm. she doing, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. So I kind of provided for her. And then in the back of my head, I'm like, I, I should probably see if I can go shadow this guy. Um, I, I didn't even know he was that close. He's, he was yeah. literally 10 minutes away from where I was working. So um, I, I came into Shadow Teddy, and that was in, I want to say, March or April of that year, 2017. And then mm-hmm. every three weeks, I kind of just came in, came in, came in. In August or September of that year, he told me he was looking for a new therapist. And, you know, I told him that if you wanted a commitment, I was ready to, to, to take it. So I shook his hand, and that, that was it. Um, and, you know, when, when you come into this cash-based environment, again, it's, it's, a, it's a grind way it at all. A lot, I, I know for a fact that you probably work six, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're, you're a little more established now, so maybe you've, you probably earned the right to kind of take a day off here and there. But I know, you know, your first two, three years, you're just grinding and grinding and grinding. And that was what I was, I was in for the, especially the first year. You know, I, 
uh, I, I actually thought about quitting this place because I, I took a massive pay cut in my first year. I had a really right. good salary my last job. And, you know, again, taking that chance to come place of, you know, there is no guaranteed salary. We, we make money based on every patient that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no benefits here, you know, luck. So, and luckily I'm, I'm married. So I got to hop onto my wife's health insurance and things like that. But you know, the 401ks and the, the, the matching and things like that, we don't have any of that stuff dental, you know? So it's, it was a, it's not an, it's never an easy decision to take a chance on, on coming to a place like this. Right. Um, but I, I think when I thought about even like a, a thought of quitting uh, i talked to again some friends and my wife and things like that they're like you can't they're like you've only been in this for six months like we're fine like it's not a financial issue necessarily thankfully we're, we're very blessed but they're like you have to write it out and then literally like three or four months after i had those thought processes my case started picking up like every week i was like you know i was seeing 20 and then 25 and then i was like oh wow this is like this is kind of nice now um and then for me like i if i see about 30 to 35 i'm pretty i'm pretty happy that's a it's yeah. a nice comfortable caseload on top of anything else I'm doing like online and things like that, that's, it's, it's, it's perfectly fine. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a grind for the first year and a half to two years mm-hmm. or so, but it's, it's, it's been a fun, it's been a fun ride. That's awesome. And so does Teddy have like marketing systems set up for you guys or you're kind of contracting and so also responsible for some of your own marketing and caseload? Uh, a little bit of both. Uh, we don't have like specific systems. I think the, I, I would say the best thing for us has been word of mouth as far yeah. as growth goes. Um, you know, Teddy has been here for four years now and I've been here mm-hmm. for three. So his mm-hmm. first year, a lot of it was, you know, he did the grind too, where he was, he was basically wearing two hats. He was doing a strength coach. He was, you know, right. doing, he would have some team training at 6am in the morning and he would see a patient at like 9am. And that, that was the kind of thing that he was doing. And he was just kind of slowly building up and making a name for himself. Um, and then at, at this point, we've been here for three years or four years now. And thankfully we have about four orthos in this area who mm-hmm. value what we do from a, especially at athletic standpoint right. and they'll send us people. But again, that took time. It's not something that happened overnight. You know, I, and my, my first year I tried all this stuff. I, I wanted to go meet with orthos, even ones I used to work for, you know, right, I, I right. was, you know, I, and I tried to frame it as like, I'm not trying to steal your patients. I'm trying to take the ones that kind of Mac, uh, they graduate from your facility and are ready for like that next phase of, you know, mm-hmm. the rehab to performance phase. Um, and to this day, I've gotten zero referrals from anyone who I've ever worked with, you know, and wow. they, they told me they like me and things like that, but you know, they, it's, it's a different value point, but we've had four orthos who do value what we do now. Mm-hmm. But again, it took time to kind of build that relationship with them. And it took time for patients to like voice their opinion to their orthos. Like, Oh, I really like what Wesley and Teddy do. And hopefully now Sweezy and things right. like that. Yeah. Um, so That's, I would say word of mouth by far is the best thing that, that, that for growth wise for our business. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done some community stuff, you know, I've tried to do some ACL reduction, injury reduction, things like that. Um, but I would say number one is, is, is word of mouth. Yeah. Well, that's great. Is there, um, are the four orthos that actually send you guys, uh, patients, do they own like, or have their own PTs that work with them? Or are they kind of like, independent aberrant uh, you know like uh, it's, that, it's a mix yeah there's yeah. i think two of them that do have pt facilities and that, which is obviously harder to get them to send those people mm-hmm. so when they do it's like wow that's really that's a really big deal yeah. uh and then they there's a couple of them who don't who aren't affiliated which is actually a perfect scenario because you know obviously if they're not affiliated with anyone then it's it's a much more easier process right. for them to send those people yeah yeah i mean i hardly see any post-surgical patients and i've seen I think one person for ACL rehab in my 11 years here, because he was a student that moved from, had a surgery from out of town, came in town and we're close to the school and he didn't have like, uh, 
you know, like we were the recommendation and he came to see us and it was great. And he got better really quick, yeah. you know? Um, but, uh, okay. So going back, uh, for other people listening, cause there's a lot of people who are listening who are in a very a position like you are, or maybe they're contracting with someone else or doing that. Is there anything that you would do differently going back, um, to when you started working, um, with Teddy at healthy baller that you might do differently now? Ooh, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I, there's a lot of mistakes that I made. Um, and, and part of some of them were more impulse decisions because you know, you're, you're I was kind of panicking. I was like, I've only mm-hmm. seen 15 patients a week. And I had this expectation of wanting to be at, you know, 20, closer to 25 to 30. So almost 50% lower than what I wanted to be at. Right. Um, so I, I, I did, I think that don't be discouraged. I, I think that's one thing of, you know, when you network with people, because for every eight people that reject you, you're hopefully going to get one person that says yes. And that one person can turn into three and then turn into five. And then that's, I think trusting the process is probably the number one thing I would say to any cash based person. It's like, if you're putting out good work and you understand that you're bringing value, that's different than a more traditional model, then you just have to kind of write it out. And there's no other way of sugarcoating it except for the fact that it takes time. You know, I, I'm guessing, Aaron, when you started, you didn't start off by having 30, 40 patients right away. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it, it's a grind. You know, you take time and, you know, you start, you hopefully over the, every two or three months, you kind of reevaluate every quarter you're assessing like, oh, wow, I improved by 15 to 20% and another 15, 20%. And then that's the slow, in my opinion, that's going to happen for cash base, unless you have you know, maybe you are, have a big social media presence and it's easier to transition. But for the most, for the majority of us, it just, it's, it's a process that takes time because people have to understand that your, your, what you're bringing to the table is different because, and that's why they're paying X amount of dollars for your service. Mm-hmm. If they don't understand that, then they're not going to pay that amount of money. And they're going to go to the more traditional model because that is still what 90 to 95% of people understand is what traditional physical therapy is. You know, again, there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's a, there's a place for it for, for sure. We still send people who don't want to pay for our services to insurance places that we value around here. Um, so I would say number one thing is trust the process. And then I would say that don't be afraid to try things. So like I, and, and, and fail because I, I, I did plenty of that. And I'm sure you did too, Aaron, where it's like, I, I try to make my own website. That thing was absolute garbage my first time doing it, but I had a website, you know, and then eventually when I started making a little money, I was like, I should probably pay someone, pay someone to do a much better job than I did. So I paid someone. And my first time I, I obviously went the super cheap route and then that was a better website than what I had made, but then I was ready for another one. So I paid again. Um, and now my website is been like this for about two years now and I, and I love it. And it was, it's the way that I always thought of it, envisioned it. Um, so, you know, it's, there's part of it that's just, again, I, I think by far just trusting the process of, especially if you're in that grind of, of building up your insurance base, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to reach out to coaches, uh, trying different things is, 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 is a big thing too. I, we, we've done plenty of things where we failed and, you know, you just kind of grow from it, learn from it, put, push that aside and then just keep, keep learning and growing from it. Oh, that's awesome. Those are great points. Thank you for sharing that. So from this first patient, your <clears throat> you had ACL, uh, you had an ACL reconstruction and you're doing PT with her and you start getting more people coming in to see you, um, for their ACL rehab. Like I know it takes a while. Like it's not just, you know, six or seven visits and you're good. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, you could be six or seven visits and you're a whole lot better, but are you ready to go back to sport? Are you, and it depends on what you like to do too. Right. Like, cause some people tear their ACL, like probably slipping on the mud and they're like, it's not a very good story. Um, and I like, you know, I just walk for a living, but what's the, 
average length of visits or time uh, for people to get fully recovered after a surgery? Like how many, like, what are we talking about these days? Yeah. So it's, I, I think that especially for where I am, I, I get a really wide range. I'll get kids who are seven, eight months out or I'll see kids immediate post-op. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's a really, really wide range. I have a young adult right now, um, mid twenties, very active, didn't have great care, but she is nine months out from surgery. Um, just, just hasn't had the smoothest recovery process. So we're backtracking a lot to do things that should have been done one week post-op. Yeah. It's tough. You know, she still doesn't even have full range of motion yet, and she's nine months post-op, which is, you know, it's, it's awful to hear. Um, again, the foundational stuff that ends up making a world of difference. And she was trying to build off of a poor foundation. So I was mm-hmm. like, we need to backtrack and reset this foundation. Um, it's, it's, that's probably one of the hardest questions ever answered because people, yeah. athletes who come in here, they, they, that's one of the most common questions that I get on a daily basis. Um, it's hard to gauge like how, how quickly an athlete is going to build strength. Um, how, even the psychological side of recovery. So if you're talking from day one, if I see them post-op minimum nine months, that's based mm-hmm. on research that I will never clear one before nine months. I would say the only times that's like a rare, rare anomaly is that if you're, if you have the smoothest recovery of all time, and maybe if you're a professional athlete and this is your way of making a living and it's mm-hmm. like a tryout that you have it like eight months, like who am I to tell you that, you know, you can't do that because this is your livelihood. Right. So that's probably the rare situation, but for the majority of people, I think it's nine months minimum. And if you're under 18, especially if you're a female, I want to hold you out closer to 11 to 12 months. Mm-hmm. And again, every, all the research supports that if you just wait a little bit longer, a little bit longer, you're setting yourself up for success. Um, and then, you know, re- retear rates are one every four to five kids. So you're looking at 20 to 25% of people mm-hmm. are retearing. Um, between 10 and I, thankfully, we've only had two retairs in our three, four years of working here. Yeah. Um, but we do a lot of, 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 of objective testing before we clear an athlete. And I actually want my people, want my athletes passing multiple times before I clear them. Mm-hmm. And then even when they get cleared, having a plan, like, okay, if you're a starter, you're not going to go out there and play starters minutes right away. You're going to cut out to maybe 30% of the game first, get your, like, you know, get your heart rate up, kind of get used to the game speed. You can't replicate that anywhere. Is it's never really, you're not playing at that same intensity level with all your adrenaline running fans and things like that. So I think, I think having uh, testing and also having a clear cut plan uh, is probably the best way for any athlete to, to succeed when they go back from ACL rehab. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And I think when I'm hearing you talking about that, I'm like, well, gosh, there's a certain point at which insurance is going to cut these people loose or the, uh, the physician owned practice or whatever the mill or someone else can be like, yeah, you got full range of motion. You got five out of five strength. You can run a hundred yards. Like you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Right. And th- those are probably a lot of the people that, you know, get retears, but maybe not, but there's probably, it sounds like, um, from, from what you're explaining, there's probably half of the time you're spending with them doesn't look like physical therapy. Yeah. Right. I, I, what, what people would, I guess, traditionally consider physical therapy because we are doing a ton of weightlifting. You know, my, my job is to prepare them for this, for the physical demand. Um, and you're, you're, you know, obviously with all the, we see a lot of high school and college level athletes here. That's the majority of who I work with. So I'm preparing them from soccer, basketball, uh, football, lacrosse. Like these are high demand sports, like lots of cutting, lots of reactive mm-hmm. work. So it is my job to prepare them for that. So I think, a lot of the stuff that people may see compared to, again, like a more traditional model of physical therapy, like we're, we're picking up heavy weights, like we're right. squatting a lot of weight, we're, we're, we're sprinting, we're moving, we're cutting, uh, we're reacting, you know, sometimes I'll get in there, move around a little bit and have you 
have you defend me because that's how sports works. You're reacting to a human body. So there's a lot of things that I incorporate into my ACA rehab that, that I guess might not look like the more traditional model, but in my opinion is absolutely necessary in order to adequately prepare them um, for kind of full recovery. Because a lot of places, whether it's uh, just not understanding the, the whole picture of ACA rehab or not having the equipment or whatever reason, um, but there's a lot of places that, in my opinion, aren't equipped to to get an athlete all the way back. And I, I gave an example of my old physical therapy facility, and it's not bashing them. It's just the nature of what it is. Like, if you can't pick up heavy weights, you it's going to be very hard for you to get back to full strength, regardless of how right. slow of a tempo you want to get to. Um, right. So, you know, people are surprised. I have, like, college level athletes in here who are, you know, squatting 185, 200 pounds. But it's like, we, we got to get them very, very strong to get back to playing sport, playing their sport so that they can – stay healthy forever and not have to suffer a second tear. Right. Can we guarantee that? No, but I can promise you that I'm going to prepare you to the best of my ability. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess it, you know, it's like, well, people, people might say, if you're, especially if you're new to the podcast, well, how do you justify that? How can you justify seeing someone for physical therapy when they don't have pain or they have, they, they can do all the things that, you know, Aaron can do, but Aaron's not a high level athlete anymore. Or, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I guess, I guess the point is, is it doesn't matter if you can get them on tra- on, on uh, board with your um, ACL recovery program. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know? And I think that's the, you know, that's the benefit of being out of network yeah. um, is that when they first start, you know, you, you basically phrase them that they understand like, Hey, this is out of network. I can't guarantee that you're going to be covered, but I can guarantee you that our service is going to be different than what you experienced previously. Mm-hmm. You know, we see every patient for an hour. Most of the time my ACOs here for our, our closer are here closer to an hour and 15, sometimes even an hour and a half. And it's like, you're not going to really get that in a more traditional based model, you know, picking up heavy weights, understanding that cardio is a big component to it too. Like there's so many, there's so many things that go into it. So, you know, I've, we've been in this for about, three years now and no one's really said anything about the price necessarily and they understand that the value is matched with the price hopefully yeah do you guys um when you see someone for the first time and you know hey this person's going to be with me for you know nine ten months or more are you sitting them down and saying hey this is what we can do this is what i can help you get back to this is a nine month program minimum and the cost is like ten thousand dollars or whatever it is like are you doing that or you're like hey we're gonna do it once once a week and i mean how does that work for you guys because i know like when i see someone who's got a more of a persistent pain back pain issue in general six to eight visits i can get is about average right mm-hmm. and i know but acl nine months like you come see aaron for the for nine months we're talking like nine thousand know? dollars right right yeah <laughs> it, it does obviously add up over time um and you know it's i think that it comes down to obviously there, there is finances that plays a role right. into this, unfortunately, you know, and if the parents are able to kind of afford it and things like that, we, we do offer a, a, a package rate, which is significantly mm-hmm. lower. It's like a 20% decrease off of our normal, nor, normal hourly rate. Um, so when you offer the package that obviously helps soften the blow and some insurances do cover, we've had, we've had some insurances cover up to like 80% of wow. the outer network, which is like amazing, uh, or at least up to a certain point. Um, and that, that obviously helps a lot too. Uh, but I think in, in maybe just in this area, we live in a pretty, a pretty nice area. So, you know, it's some of the parents are able to afford it, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I am very honest with it up front. You know, I, I tell them that, you know, on average, I'm seeing people two, two, at least two times a week. Some parents are like, you know, we, we want our kids to have 
like everything they possibly can. So we want to bring them three times a week. And, you know, if they want to do it, then I, and they understand that there's obviously a cost component mm-hmm. to it, then I'm not going to decline them from being here for three times. Cause I obviously can help if it's three times a week, right. there's a lot more that we can work on. And there's a lot less that puts on the kid for, for doing it at home. You know, you think about a 15 year old kid, like how, if you give them a, a home exercise program, like the, the, the percentage of them doing it is not going to be very high. And right. I think that for me, once the foundation is set and I can get them lifting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like you don't really need to do much at home. You know, the rest mm-hmm. of it is just recovery. Maybe I'll have you jog and go for a little run, but in general, I don't need you lifting at home because you're already lifting three days a week with me, right. uh, which is obviously sometimes it's a big plus because they can just focus on schoolwork or whatever it is that a high school kid does nowadays. Yeah. Um, so I, I think being very upfront with it and understanding that they understand it is a lengthy process and that there is hopefully a, a savings with it as in regards to um, the, the, the packages, but also understanding that, you know, we, we tell them our retail rates, you know, that what the national average is and what ours is. And this is, this is what you're kind of paying for. And it's like, if you go through this twice, like then you're looking at like, am I even going to be able to play sports again? So it's not mm-hmm. just about like the, you know, the one-time thing of nine months and then you're done. It's like, you're, you're essentially making an investment into your body. Um, so I think that's why we care so much about our return to sport process, because that is what people are paying for. That that's like that end stage. Like I feel 100%. It's not like, then I feel 80, 85% I'm going back to playing sports, which is a dangerous place to be. Right. Uh, because a lot of people feel that way and they go back to playing sports and then that's how you end up uh, injuring yourself again. Um, so I, I think those are kind of the, the things that we try to put forth about like why we bring value to the table. Mm, well, that's great. Um, let's see, is the, you know, like I said, like I, I haven't done much uh, post ACL uh, rehab in the last decade. <laughs> is it still pretty much uh when you tear your acl like one of the things i learned was and this was in 2007 so like basically at that time it was um okay you've torn your acl the initial swelling's gone down surgery might be scheduled out for three or four weeks or three months um get you to the point at which you feel like you don't need the surgery and then we're going to take you to surgery and then it was come out of surgery, make sure you got range of motion. Once we get your range of motion, then we can start working on, I mean, working on strength or reactivating muscles, et cetera. And then from there, a lot of times it was like, drop the patients off, right? But, and after that, it's still like, we got to do some strengthening or make sure they have strength for their full range of motion. But is that basically the same? Are things changed or what has changed and what's the best, um, you know, like what's the best practices right now? Yeah. Um, so as far as like the early phase of rehab, yeah, hundred percent still the same, you know, obviously it's get, 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 get the swelling down, get full range of motion, get the quads going by far the three most foundational things that you mm-hmm. are must do early on. Um, and a lot of people will come to see, and you'd be surprised about some of the things that I see where, you know, my, the worst I've ever seen is a 14 year old girl, three months, po- uh, sorry, she was six months post-op, but she was told at three months post-op that she could be discharged from physical therapy and do the rest of rehab on her own 14 year old girl. She came in to see me with a 12 degree extension lag. Um, and they told her that she could be discharged on her own. And I was like, this person deserves to lose a license. It's, it's yeah. unbelievable. Um, and these are some of the things that I see, unfortunately. So, you know, you think about like why I, I harp so much about doing the foundation rights, because even if this girl is not a high level athlete, you want to get her back to at least functioning, be able to jog, go outside and run, whatever it is. Right. It's hard to do that with 12 degree extension lag. Um, so that's some of the stuff that I focus on. And I think that's the absolute premise of the start. 
And then nowadays there's a lot of research into how much like neuroplasticity is affected, how much the brain is affected with rehab. And this is like somewhat new, like Dustin Grooms is kind of like the big guy to, to, to kind of focus on this stuff. And I, it's some of the stuff that I started to incorporate really, really early. So a lot of people see kind of like, they might even think of it as like quote unquote gimmicky, but like I, for example, like a, a lateral banded walk, that's a very common exercise to give. Even, you know, you could do it at four weeks post-op. It's safe, mm -hmm. right? You're just, it's slow and steady. But it's like, why would you give them one mundane task of just walking louder for 10 yards and walking back for 10 yards? Hey, let's, why can't we add a ball toss so they can work on visual tracking or add, add their sport in if it's lacrosse, do, do with, with the ball, right? Nope, no right. problem. On top of that, I've, I've thrown in like, I'll put an iPad on the side to make them turn their head and go back and forth, back and forth. Again, that's how sports works. You think about a basketball player dribbling down. They're never just looking straight. They're looking at where the, all the other eight players are, maybe turning their head to look at the coach for the play call, whatever it is, the fans, like the, the shot clock. There's so many things that, like that's, that is going on in a game. So if I can work on multitasking and trying to affect neuroplasticity early in rehab, that's only going to help them later on in rehab. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that's kind of up and coming in regards to how ACE rehab should be done is working in. Um, a cognitive component working in uh, like multitasking throughout the entire rehab process and not just waiting for, you know, Oh, they're, they look really good. Now it's six months post-op. Now we can work that stuff in. Right. Um, and even then like some kids aren't even getting that, you know, making them think when they're doing a reactive stuff. Uh, and I think that's probably one of the bigger components. And uh, on top of that, I, I think that a lot of PT still don't understand exactly how strong a kid sorry, I want to say anybody needs to be when they're recovering from ACR rehab. Mm -hmm. It's like, you need to be freakishly strong in order to safely go back to playing. Um, and I think like, I, I always tell every person that comes to the door, it's like, I want you to leave or graduate from me being the strongest version of yourself. Um, so that you understand that when you go back, like you are ready to go back. It's not, we're not guessing about this. We, we understand you put in all this work to prove to me that you are strong enough. You are mentally ready enough to go back to playing sports. Yeah, that's great. Um, how strong does someone need to be? Do they need to be able to deadlift their body weight? Is it like deadlift twice their body weight, be able to, you know, jump a certain amount of times? Do you have like a specific parameters that you follow or, you know? Yeah. So we, we have a, we have a, a different, a lot of different ways to do uh, testing here. Like there's obviously the traditional hop test that most people nowadays mm -hmm. understand uh, being at least 90%. Actually, for me personally, for hop tests, I want them to be like 95 to 100%. I just think there's so many ways to cheat that. So if you're going to be able to cheat it, you might as well be able to cheat it to 100%. Yeah. Um, and also for the hop test, looking at, it should be also looking at the quality of landing because yeah. the, the test nowadays is based on strictly the quantity of getting from point A to point B. What's the hop? Can you go back? Like, what's the hop test? Because I'm like, you hop on one leg, but you know, like. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, there's four major hop tests. Uh, the first one is a single hop test. So you're jumping yeah. from the same leg and landing on the same leg for as far as you can comparing the two sides. Mm -hmm. And then you have a triple hop test. So it's hop, hop, stick the third one. And then you have a crossover where you're, where usually we have like, we have a turf space here. So we have a line. So I'll have them hop on one side of the line to the other. So introducing a slight lateral component mm -hmm. to it. Again, that's a triple four distance again and sticking the third. And then the fourth one is a six meter, six meter time test. That one's a little harder to gauge just because like, you know, there's, there's a lot of user error to it just because like when, when I stop my watch or start to watch, whatever it is. Um, so those are the four major hop tests uh, and research wants at least 90%. Again, for me, I'm pushing closer to 95 to hundred yeah. percent. Like left to right 90 for 90%? Uh, uh, contralateral or, to yeah. ACL side. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you're looking at a, a, we need to have some sort of objective strength testing. So we have multiple ways of doing that here. We have a handheld dynamometer. Uh, we also just got an inline one of those crane dynamometers that we're mm -hmm. that we're going to use for isometric testing. 
we also have a Kaiser machine, which I use more for like a strength testing, but also measuring power output because that's obviously a big component. You need to have strength to have power. Right. Um, so that's it. The, the Kaiser machine is really nice just cause like I, I do it on the non, non affected side first, have them basically do a knee extension, right. And then load it up pretty heavy mm-hmm. and then measure the maximum output. So just for ease of purpose, like 500, whatever it is. And if they get, you know, uh, if they get the, the machine will tell you, if you do on the other, tell you a percentage of 500 on, or, or the percentage of the other side. So okay. a very clear cut objective number, like can't cheat it. I'm not, I'm not guessing whether or not you're, you're 80%, you're, you're showing me your 80%. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a nice way to kind of re it's, it's easy to repeat also. And then Teddy also was able to buy force plates, which is that's so amazing for return to sport process because right. it's just, it gives you objective data that you cannot get from the naked eye or from any other thing, any other machine minus the force plate. So we'll do a counter movement jump on there. So it measures the, it measures so many things, but we look at like the height, we also look at, there's a, it, it gives you a number of time to stabilize. So how quickly you can basically balance out to being like flat and without moving. Um, it also tells you like peak velocity and peak power and things like that. And then all, we also do an isometric testing on it where we'll set them up under the squat rack and just have them do like an, uh, an isometric press upward. Um, and then that'll tell you peak, uh, peak power. And I would say that one of the biggest things that that, that force place tell you is the time it takes to get to your peak power. So some people might be, you know, 90% within power wise, but it takes them twice as long to get there. So that's still giving you valuable information about how we need to incorporate that into rehab. Right. Um, so that we have a pretty rigorous return to sport process here and we want to see them pass it multiple times before they, we kind of officially clear them to be discharged from us. Yeah. Does it make a difference whether the uh, affected side is my dominant limb or not? Like how you guys are testing people? Me personally, no, you know, I, I just want to see both sides getting strong, you know, I, cause a lot of times I think that in, in rehab, people won't lift the non-affected side, but a lot of sides, like if we have four sets for this, for that circuit, like I'll do four sets on the ACL side and three sets on the non-ACL side. Cause you've got to keep that other side strong, other side strong too. Uh, so I think if you start neglecting the other side, you're kind of getting false information about what you're, what you're comparing it to. Right. Um, you know, in, in a perfect world, you have some sort of objective testing before the athlete gets hurt, but that's <laughs> impossible. Uh, maybe I'd say the only setting, the college yeah. setting, they do that. Um, right. A lot of schools are doing that nowadays, but you know, for us in the rehab world, like it's just not something that we're going to have access to. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what are the stages of the re- rehab? Like, do you have like different stages where you're testing people all the way through or it's not just, cause it's not just this like one, like exit, exit exam that you're doing, right? You've probably got a couple different phases of tests and are there different tests that, that people should be utilizing at different phases of rehab? Uh, so as far as like that formal, like return to sport process, I don't, I don't personally start doing that until like, six months in because it's just you you know there's going to be a major deficit in their strength um and sometimes like you know there's if if they're having a little bit more complicated recovery process maybe if it's a patella tendon and they're dealing with patellofemoral pain like i don't want them hopping for max distance because it's probably going to aggravate their symptoms mm-hmm. so there's a lot of like nuances that, that goes into the decision making process of when they're ready to to kind of be tested to give them information um and you know, I know there's some, some research out there that supports the fact that you should be doing strength testing at like three or four months, but we don't, we don't have a form of biodex either, which is, you know, that's a $30,000 piece of equipment that we just don't have access to. Um, and there's some people want to do it at three or four months because that, that'll gauge when they're ready to jog. 
but there's this test of strength. You can test it based off of like a single leg touch doing off of like a, 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 pistol, a single leg pistol. You know, there's different ways to assess strength to gauge whether or not they're ready. Can they absorb force? There's so many things to do prior to, to jogging for a sense. But as far as like the actual return to sport process, like I don't really start doing that until about six months post-op. Yeah. Is there something um, that you find, like a lot of the people that come to your, to work with you and learn about rehab in your mastermind group, is there something that quite a few of the people are overlooking in, is there like a body part? Like, is it maybe like a, a dorsiflexion issue that comes along with ACL uh, like injuries or something that they're over, that most people are overlooking or if they would uh, address this or find this issue, they're going to move their patients along even faster. Uh, I think if, if you're talking like the, I think some people underestimate like, again, how important that early phase is. I talked to you about like the range of motion, things like that. Like you got to get it back full. If you're missing a few degrees of flexion, all right, cool. No big deal. No one really squats that deep anyway. Um, but extension goes, got to get all the way back. Again, there's some anomalies. Like if you have like 15 degrees of hyperextension, all right, cool. We're probably okay not being there. But for a normal person for, for hyperextension, if you have five degrees, let's get five degrees on the other side. It's not one of the things that it's good enough. Um, but let's try and make sure we're doing the work to get all the way back. And on top of that, like there's, I, I think that, when you get to the jogging phase, a lot of times a protocol will tell you at about 12 weeks, you're ready to jog. Okay. Like, what does that mean? Like, how do you know? Um, and there's certain things that again, making sure that you are assessing before, like, can they accept load? Can they absorb force? Mm -hmm. That is literally what running is over and over and over again. So if you, if you come, if you can't comfortably accept load, then you shouldn't clear them to jog it just because the protocol says at 12 weeks, you should do that. Um, and I think, you know, your, your question about like what people overlook. And I think, Sometimes loading the quads with a positive shin angle is really something that's overlooked. And again, when you're early on a rehab, you've got to do it very, very safely because it's, it, it's, it's a sensitive time. The, right. the knee is still healing. There's probably some swelling there. If, if you're a patella tendon, you obviously don't want to be doing it a ton, but it is absolutely necessary. So doing things like a, like I'll do something like a split squat in the doorway and just, you know, have your knee tap the door frame because again, you're just getting some of that knee coming forward. And the longer, in my opinion, the longer you avoid it, the more time we have to do later on to backtrack, to clear that up. Cause if you can't do that, like, how are you going to jog? You know, your right. knee's not going to be able to absorb that force. So those are kind of the two big things, force absorption and loading with a positive shin angle in that kind of early to mid phase of rehab um, that I think is often overlooked. And then in the later stages, it's more so like, I think people don't really, uh, unless you're taught this, like the, the, all the reactive exercises go into it because again, that's how it's sports is, purely reactive there's very few sports that it's just like i know what i'm doing maybe a baseball pitcher mm -hmm. <laughs> but again their acl is not going to really matter too much in that situation again but as far as like landing and reacting and things like that goes um but you think about basketball lacrosse football like it's purely reactive the defenders right. here i gotta go the opposite way so we again we need to prepare them and then lastly like a higher stage plyometric um, I think you can get a lot of information by putting them in a different, in different situations as far as plyometric goes, because a lot of times you'd be surprised, like they might look good in the weight room as far as like, Oh yeah. Like they, they feel the same as far as picking up a certain weight with an exercise, but then you put them in a, an aggressive plyometric. They're like, Oh wow. Like I feel slower or mm -hmm. maybe the landing off it. Like, I just don't feel like I land as comfortably or I'm thinking about it more. Okay. This is all information that we need to know because that's how we can, we need to be able to help them adapt and help them change in the situation so that their confidence so that when they do this aggressive plyometric it feels 100 the same 
Um, so that, again, I think that's probably the different phases of, of things that people kind of neglect or, or don't really understand the full picture of. Right. Right. Well, that's great. What, um, what question didn't I ask you yet that you think would be important for people to know? Oh, um, I, I think that, you know, obviously with, with me, with, with ACO rehab, it, it's, it's, uh, I think in my opinion, there needs to be some sort of proper like education in regards to this, this specific mm-hmm. area of the outpatient world, because you think about, and I think back to when I was a new grad, when I was a new grad, my first ACL, here's, here's a protocol, Wesley, like go take this ACL from point A to point B. And it's like, Okay. So I, 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 and I remember this vividly, like I literally followed this thing to a T because that's, that's all I knew. You know, I, I wasn't, I was never really taught how to do it. Um, there was no creativity behind it. There's no like thought processes like, okay, progressing from point A to point B should not be this time-based thing. And that's, that's how almost every protocol is nowadays. There's some protocols out there that's slowly progressing to being more criterion based, which is how it should be. But like, how can you tell me, you know, Aaron, you tear your ACL, if I tore my ACL, like, how are you, we going to be recovering the same, you know? And on top of that, like, okay, between the two of us, what if you compare us to a 20 year old who's trying to get back to division one football, you know, like our recovery is not going to look the same. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the part that bothers me the most is that like they, they treat it, the outpatient world treats it as if it's like a grade one ankle sprain when it's, in my opinion, recovering from ACL is probably one of the most complex injuries as far as the outpatient world that we will see. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of details that goes into it and a lot of it is missed. And, you know, I, like, for example, I have a girl right now that I would say that she could go to a lot of outpatient facilities that people would be like, she's, she's clear to go. Right. Um, but for her, like for her, she had a hamstring graft. Uh, she is 15 years old, hamstring graft soccer player. Okay. You're talking about an exact demographic of athletes who are most likely to suffer yeah. a second tear. Right. Um, so for her, she is strong. Her quads are symmetrical. We have tested her out multiple times, hop tests, symmetrical, multiple times, crushed it. But hamstring-wise, it is end-range flexion that she is the most weak in. So I literally tested her yesterday. She is testing at about 65% strength at end-range. And I'm talking 90 degrees to whatever, 120 degrees, that mm-hmm. last little bit. You compare the two sides. And again, this is like details that sometimes get overlooked, you know, because right. you can test her You can test her just her hop test. You can test just her quad strength. And she passed all those. So you're telling me that I can clear her just – but even though her hamstrings are 65% of the other side, which we know it, the hamstrings are – a knee stabilizer. And this comes from just experience of, of putting them in different positions and, and assessing the entire way through. Um, so I, I think in my opinion, every facility that sees a ton of ACLs should have at least one person on staff that like understand this is in the research so that they can mentor the people under mm-hmm. them. Um, have mm-hmm. a wishful thinking that'll happen for a long time, if, if ever. I, and I think there should be you know, a course on it and things like that, which is why I decided to start my group in the first place and hopefully getting to some teaching later on on this very, very specific injury. But again, it affects, I think, what, 200 plus people in the United States every single year. Like, right. it's, it's, a, it's a big thing. 200,000 plus people, right? Yeah. 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 Like that's that. crazy. So you're, um, God, that's a lot. Well, there's a ton of people in this country. <laughs> have you driven across the country yet? <laughs> Yeah, I personally have not drawn it. I've flown across it, but never drawn yeah. across it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people. And you think about like, there's so many people playing sports. Like, yeah. High school, I think participation in high school sports is like all time high at this point. Yeah. Uh, and also you think about specializing in sports too. Like kids nowadays, it's a different generation than when we grew up. Like people are specializing in sports starting from like ninth grade, ninth and 10th right. grade. They're specializing in their sport just so they can get a scholarship to play division one sport, whatever it is. And 
you know, it's, and that's, that could be another reason why people are, are injuring themselves more right. now too. Do you so have I a think, tough time getting kids to, you know, cross train? Um, I think in this area, not so much. Um, but we do, there's a good, I would probably say a good 30, 40% of people are specializing in a sport. But even then we tell them like, if you're at least doing some weight training and doing some like, you know, training with a strength coach, like that is mm-hmm. something different than what you're doing. So, right. um, is it like an exact sport as far as like lacrosse and soccer, lacrosse and basketball? No, but a good amount of our kids do play at least two sports, which is mm-hmm. always nice to hear. I, I think that it's nice just for a developmental purpose, like play different sports. You think about all the great, great athletes, like of all time, like they played multiple sports growing yeah. up. So let's just, we, kind of we got kids here that. being told by the soccer coach, you can't play basketball mm-hmm. or basketball. Mm-hmm. You can't play soccer and, and swimming all year long and soccer, AAU basketball all year long. It's like, you guys come on. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think those, like those club sports, like they're, I mean, they're taking over, you know, they're right. like, you just talked about AAU basketball. Like you, you have your, you have your winter season of just, and you maybe get like a two week break and then you're right back in the AU season for like the rest of the nine months and then right back into it yeah. or and over and over again. And that's the same with, you know, lacrosse, basketball, you know, football, like they're all the same. Like yeah. they all have or football is probably the only sport that you don't have club in. Um, but all the other ones have some sort of club that you're just doing. Right. Right. Well, Wesley, um, thank you for coming on in uh, the show and sharing your insights and, um, and educating us about the ACL and what you've been up to. If someone wants to learn more about you or your mastermind, your ACL mastermind program, where's the best place for them to go or how do they find you? Yeah. So, uh, as far as like social media goes, I'm only pretty much on Instagram. Uh, but it's Wesley Wong, uh, NG, Wesley, W A N G dot D P T. Uh, that's where I'm mostly, most easily, um, mastermind group. I actually don't really know the link off the top of my head, but hopefully you can link that in the show notes for Aaron. Um, but yeah, the, the mastermind group, essentially just a quick little spiel about it. It's basically just a, it's a growing database of exercises, not just exercises, but like assessments, uh, movement breakdowns. I, I actually teach things as far as like how to break down a cut. We don't really learn that in school. And I've had the mm-hmm. privilege of learning from our strength coaches here, how to teach a deceleration, um, how to, how to do reactive exercises, you know, all starting from day one post-op all the way to that really aggressive late stage. Um, I, I, I actually, I add content every three weeks. Currently over 250 some videos. I think currently we have about 220 some people in the mastermind wow. group right now. Uh, it's a nice community. There's also a private forum. So like if you have the case that you're like, I don't really know where to go. Like it's exactly where you go. You have a, a lot mm-hmm. of P- DPTs, strength coaches, ATs in there that, you know, just want to grow and want to learn. Uh, and I'm pretty active. I'm obviously very active on this. So if you have a question, I, I will always respond on the forum and things like that. And people share articles share resources. There's so many things that just, I, I've tried to put a lot of effort into growing this thing that I feel like was, is a resource that I wish I had when I was a student and a new grad. Right. Right. That's awesome. It sounds great. Like, cause I just had to like think up stuff and make it up and be like, that doesn't feel right. Let's try yeah. this other thing. Yeah. You know, so yeah. to be able to have someone to go to for um, solid answers is, is really important. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely link that up. And I know you can get it from your uh, Instagram uh, and go to the link in your bio there because um, that's where it took me. So mm-hmm. um, Wesley, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you. Um, for all you guys uh, listening, this is Aaron LeBauer, Wesley Wong. This is the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. Go out there, like whatever, you know, treat your patients right. <laughs> Do what's right for your patients first. And if that means you got to see them for nine months, man, like just do it. And that's the beauty of this whole thing. So Wesley, thanks for being here. We'll see you guys keep rocking and rolling. We'll see you on the next show. 
Hey, what's up? It's Aaron. Real quick, if you're just starting a cash-based physical therapy practice or you already have one and you want to learn how to grow it and scale it, this is for you. I just released my brand new book, The Cash PT Blueprint, because I want to get this book in the hands of every physical therapist out there. I want to give it away to you for free. All I ask is that you pay a little bit of shipping and handling, and you'll not only get the steps to create your own cash practice, but the tools to grow it and scale it beyond what everyone else thinks is possible. To snag your copy right now, go to cashptblueprintbook.com. That's C-A-S-H-P-T-B-L-U-E-P-R-I-N-T-B-O-O-K.com. And when you get your copy, give me a shout out somewhere on social media, and we'll talk to you soon.